Hello and um, good afternoon. Uh, welcome to today's webinar. Um, my name is Toby Johncox and I'm head of mortgage sales at Ennis. Um, for those of you that don't know, Ennis is the world's leading provider of or world's leading brokerage for high net worth and ultra high net worth mortgage brokerages uh, with offices all over the world and the ability to finance real estate assets almost globally. Um, we had a couple of weeks off since our last webinar, so we've come back, we've organised something that I think should be really exciting for everyone. And I'm joined by the fantastically talented um, and hugely interested, uh, interesting uh, Nicholas Reeve of Reeve Ghosh, uh, for which I was corrected on my pronunciation of yesterday. So Reeve Ghosh is this amazing business. Um, it's multifaceted interior design and property project management company that can look after all elements of any luxury development, both residential and commercial and globally. Um, so Nicholas, thank you so much uh, for joining Hi, us Tommy. today. Um, Thanks for having me. You're in the office as well, so clearly. I am, yes, yeah. so there's not, yeah, there's not a lot of people here at the moment, but yes, back in the office is a little bit, uh, it's nice to be back, I think. Yeah, super, so just by way of an introduction on today's webinar, um, we're gonna be discussing how to maximize your luxury property investment. And that's mainly looking around um, the design of the property and then also the development of that design and how to cost effectively finance that, which I'll be touching on just at the end. Um, once we finish the webinar, there will be a Q&A session. Um, so please, if there are any questions throughout the webinar, make sure you ask them. Um, Nicholas and I will do our best to give you intelligent answers and to make sure we answer everyone's questions. So thank you very much for joining us today. Um, so if we get stuck into it now, um, I think the main thing and the first thing we want to touch on, Nicholas, is really what we're seeing in the marketplace and giving a sort of quick um, update in terms of prime central London property and what is happening. Um, now, since lockdown, obviously, I'm based in our Dubai office. Um, so I look after the team here and the team globally. And, and certainly what we're saying is, you know, I can't remember a time but during COVID, after COVID, pre-COVID, where we were this busy and there was that much sort of interest and excitement on investing into London real estate. Now, if you're in London, you're feeling the heartbeat of London real estate. What, what is your sense of the market at the moment? Yeah, I, I guess most of our clients at the moment still very much uh, focusing on prime central London. Um, <laughs> most of our clients, international clients, uh, Middle East, Asia, also Europe, uh, still very much looking at that. Uh, still. Uh, looking at an investment, uh, you know, looking for the kids to go to school or sell a slightly longer term investment. So Prime Central London is still very good. We have a bit more demand at the moment on the outside of London. People want bigger estates, find outdoor space. Obviously, due to COVID, I think it's, uh, it's also a natural trend. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's picking up a little bit as well. Uh, still uh, quite a bit of movement for our clients. So no, it looks pretty good at the moment. Yeah, I'd agree. I think, you know, we see a lot of Middle Eastern clients, Russian, African and Asian. And the UK is kind of coming out and, and, and still is this nice place to put your money, to keep it safe, but also to invest in a tangible asset. And, and I think the more people I'm speaking to, yeah, there is this sort of trend in an excitement for a bit more outside space, maybe some more light, bigger windows, higher ceilings. Um, but then, you know, there is equally, you know, the, why I leave London? There's so many amazing things about living in um, in prime central London and everything that comes along with, with big city living. Um, so that's, that, that I think is a quick summary. I know there'll be people on the call who have much more expert opinions on, on yeah. prime central London property. Um, since COVID restrictions have opened back up, it was a few weeks ago now for the real estate market. And obviously following that, the construction sites opened up again. How is that, how have people been going back to work and how has the sort of new regime yeah, I mean, obviously, I think I think contractors, uh, construction industry uh, are pretty uh, uh, well clued up on the health and safety measure. So I think they uh, managed to adapt quite quickly, trying to put all the measure in place to, as much as possible, keep the distance, health and safety through sight, even if it's always a bit complicated. Uh, we find it a little bit more complicated with the supplier chain, because obviously they've closed their manufacturing uh, for about three months during the COVID. So yeah. they're sort of have to catch up a little bit on the order they couldn't really finish uh, during that period. So if you now order something for a project, you might have another sort of three, four weeks of lead time compared to other, you know, to before COVID. So this is just something we need to uh, uh, keep in mind when we start leaving projects for sure. Yeah, and I, I guess I've seen a bit of stuff in the news and I listened to 
Um, although based in Dubai, I listen to BBC Radio One during the day, and I know you know there's various social distancing measures in place on building sites, which is causing some trouble. You know, in terms of being able to have all the relevant specialities on site at one time. And I guess when yeah. you're getting your, you know, as we mentioned yesterday, you know, for the projects we're going to be speaking about, you're not popping down to B&Q to grab your, your kitchen tabletops and things like that. You know, you're, you're buying stone in from Italy, Spain, wherever it might be. And there's still yeah. various international restrictions on the movement of goods. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's, get, it's getting better by the day anyway. So I think we're yeah. finding now things going back to normal. It's just, I will say, catch up from all the orders and all the projects that hasn't been delivered during that COVID period because people obviously want to finish those uh, and trying to sort of feed the new one. Absolutely, fine. So let's get into the core topic of today and what we're here to discuss, which is the luxury development process, key challenges, what mistakes people are making and some top tips from um, the man himself, Nicholas. Um, so what are the key challenges people face when approaching a massive project like the, the ones we, we're interested in? I think it's obviously, I guess, whether you're looking at a five to 10 million property or whether you're on project, I think it's always similar challenges. Uh, the first one is trying to understand how much that will cost. People will buy this property. Uh, they want to renovate it. They want to develop it. They want to extend it. Uh, trying to understand what money should they invest and making sure they can find that money uh, at the back end of their project, that's key. So there's always a bit of a, a bigger debate at the beginning to try to understand and uh, put a figure to the development of the project. The other part will be the timing, uh, because obviously, uh, especially on investment, if you want to buy a property and then sell it back afterwards, timing is essential. Uh, and it's always very important to, uh, I would say, plan it properly, uh, because often people will try to be a little bit more optimistic, and then that could create quite a lot of problem on your, on your cost elements. Um, the adding value bits, uh, it's always, uh, you know, the, um, what you're trying to chase, how to add value to your property. Sometimes it can be adding space. Sometimes it's going to be improving your space or sometimes it's going to be uh, creating that sort of more emotional value. So we can touch on that as well. And then where do I start? Because it's always, I think the construction and design industry, especially in London, there is a lot of different people offering different solutions. So it's quite fragmented for a client. So it's always quite difficult to understand where to go um, uh, on, the, on the big project or even a smaller project. It's quite difficult for a client, I would say. Yeah, exactly. It's two thoughts for me though. I mean, we, we, you know, people, the, the clients we deal with make big decisions daily. They're, you know, where they're huge sums of money, whether they're in finance or, or whatever game they're, they're into. But on a personal level, these projects are by, by a long way the biggest financial investments they'll make in their lifetime. And it's really critical, I think, and I've talked about this in my other, other webinars over the last few weeks, to build a core team at the start of the process. And you know, I, I've sat more on the sort of standard purchase side of things in the other webinars. So accountants, lawyers, mortgage brokers, and a good real estate agent to find you that perfect property. Um, and that's to be done prior to really getting stuck in and looking at anything. But when you look at a big project, where does someone start? How does someone get their teeth into an 18 month build? Uh, obviously you're the expert, where, where does someone go from the start? Yeah, yeah absolutely, I, th I think you're right. I think even at that level, uh, any property investment will be a major investment. Uh, yeah. So I think you approach that a little bit like you approach a business, yeah? So when, when you start a business, you will want to plan for this. You want to understand your objective, the vision you've got, and then you're gonna start uh, putting your business in place, employing people around that in order to deliver that project. And, and, and property, I think, is very much in the same, uh, in the same re remate. Um, you will approach the project and structure your project differently if you were to do a buy your property, a renovate it, or sell it, or if you buy your family house that you know you're going to keep for maybe five years, 10 years, uh, and you're going to use as a pied-à-terre, for example, in London. If it's an investment and you want to flip the property quickly, time and budget is going to be essential. So you'll fully structure your project in that way where you want to uh, fix your time and your budget as quickly as possible. Uh, and obviously understand your market because you're design designing and developing a project for someone else. So you also need to be very close to real estate specialists to really understand who you're developing to. It's not your project, it's for someone else. In the second webinar we did, which is on Prime Central London property and, and how that ha what happens post-COVID, one, one of the major takeaways was 
investing, and, and this is talking to the building a property to sell on, to flip, right? Um, making sure you're buying properties of real good quality, because the good quality properties will weather the financial storms better than, you know, your sort of off the, off the sort of rail properties. And I, I, my question to you is, if you're building for yourself and you're making a finished article, or you're, you're building a property in order to, to make upside and to sell on, is there, is there a significant difference in the quality that people are producing? Or is it more just in the type of taste that you apply to those products? No, I think, I think there is a bit of a difference of the quality. If, if, you're, if you're investing for your own property, you know, you know, keep that for maybe five, 10 years, you want to give that to your, to your kids uh, you know, and pass that on. I think when you're investing, you're gonna really think about the design, the aesthetic, the function, the durability of your property, because you're gonna to have to maintain that property for five, 10 years on an investment. Mm -hmm. The quality is also important, but I will say you probably focus more on the aesthetic first because you want to appeal to that market and the function. So maybe you're not gonna, I don't know, strip completely everything out if you don't have to and start improving all these, you know, the um, uh, thermal efficiency of your property, energy efficiency of your property, because that's something you're gonna sell on and maybe that's not required. So there are things that you're gonna balance depending on what you want to do and how long you want to keep that property for sure. Yeah, fine. Fantastic. And then really in terms of, you, you talked on it earlier, the potential to add value to property. I think that's really what everyone's doing this for. I mean, if, you know, in an ultimate world, if you could buy the perfect product off the shelf, you always would, but it's like a suit, getting a tailor-made suit just fits better, right? And buying a property, I guess, in, in a lot of ways is the same. Um, but how do clients go about, maybe you give us some good insight on, on some projects you've done in the past, but how do clients go about adding real value to their properties when they're developing them um, for their own use or even for investment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there are three key elements to add value to your property that I can see. The first obvious win is create space. So if you can extend your property, you can dig a basement, you can add a floor, that obviously it's uh, clear and simple. You're gonna have more internal space, therefore you're gonna create value. Uh, there are actually, uh, a good uh, tip that maybe uh, people don't know about is um, in the UK, you can go on planning portal online and you'll have access to all the planning history in your street and your area. So if you're thinking about doing an extension to your back of your house or adding the floor, you can see whether that's been approved by someone else before. Um, so that's a, a nice way if you're thinking about extending your property in that way to have a, a quick look before, before you sort of you know, go too far in the process. So that's one thing, creating space. The other part is improving the space and the function. Um, so I can show you. Uh, yeah, some as of the they said on, uh, I think it was Art Attack or Blue Peter. Here's something we made earlier. That's it. Let's have a look. Okay. So tell us a bit. Where where is this project and what what is it we're looking at here? So that's a project we uh, we looked at in Sanjian Woods. Uh, it's a it's a it's a free it's a uh, independent properties on a nice bit of land. It's over four floors, so you've got a, a upper ground floor, a lower ground floor, and the property hasn't been touched for 20 years when we looked at it. Um, and this is just trying to express, or I will say show graphically, uh, how to improve a space. So the first thing we did with that property, um, at the moment, all the living areas of the property were on the raised ground floors. So you had the living, the dining, the kitchen, and that was the only sort of, as we call, public space in the property where people entertain, where family gather together. On the lower ground floor, it was very much back of ours, bedroom technical space, not used a lot. Um, so what we've done here, which uh, I think was, was, was quite successful there, is we're basically creating a formal and an informal space, which for those, for our clients, I'll say it's always very important to be able to have an area where you can entertain and have slightly more formal function, and you still have a family space on the lower ground floor. So here you can see on the raised floor now, it's that formal space where you have a connected dining and living area. So that's really your entertainment area. We've also put a study at front. Uh, that's quite nice if you've got working from home as well. You have guests coming in, you just take them straight to your office. You don't take them through the full house. Um, yep. And as you go to the lower ground floor, you can see the front of the garden here, which is slightly sunk down. We sort of increase that so you open up much more create that open dining uh 
and kitchen area. So that's very much your family space. And at the back of that, you've got a den, a playroom. So now you've got sort of clear function on your, on your house and that make it much more easy to sort of usable for a type of clientele as well. Yeah, um, clearly defined areas. I mean, the yeah. one thing I see in Dubai all the time, um, real estate here is just much bigger than you see in the UK. And there's just yeah. so much sort of, you know, I, I've been to a few ultra luxury houses and just endless corridors and open spaces with no real sort of functionality. And you just feel somewhat like you're in a, a school corridor or a shopping mall, but you know, yeah. utilizing space, creating rooms and creating functionality gives, I guess, massive value, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially you're right, in London, we've got in brackets, smaller properties than other places in the world. So it's also trying maybe to get rid of some of this circulation or incorporate mm -hmm. circulation within your actual rooms. So it makes much more sense in the way you, you use the, the, the space and it just creates a bit more areas. Um, this is the first floor as well. Those are typical, um, I will say, added value uh, bonus. So you've got existing a bedroom one, bedroom two, and a bathroom outside. Um, on the other side, basically creating a separate dressing, a master bedroom, and an ensuite master bathroom with a, you know, with the showers and your double sink. That make it much more appealing to our clientele. They don't want to sort of to walk out of their bedroom to go to their bathrooms. And you can see on the second bathroom as, uh, bedroom as well, manage to have again, bedroom, dressing room and bathroom. So all of those elements will definitely add uh, a very good value to any property. If you can try to have ensuite bathroom to all of your bedroom with a separate dressing, I mean, that's a, that's a winner. Yeah, nothing worse than the argy-bargy at the sink at yeah. bedtime. <laughs> Yeah, much nicer to have your own space, isn't it? And and know where everything's left, even even as far as having his and hers, so your toothbrush doesn't get stolen and, and things like that. So yeah, no, amazing, yeah. amazing. Um, and what, what what when when a client's approaching this, I mean, it's, it, I've learned so much over the sort of last two weeks we've been planning this session and and discussing things in more detail with you. Um, but you know, what costs are involved in in planning a project like this? The cost is always a, a tricky question, yeah, because uh, you will, what's, what's important at the beginning of the project uh, when discussing with the clients, it's trying to make them understand and show them exactly where their money is going to be spent. Because on any property, you could spend, you know, some project you might say, I can spend half, you know, 500,000 pounds, I can spend a million, I can spend two million on the same property. So I think what's key, it's really first to understand where you spend your money um, and make sure that when you plan a project uh, your cost plan is complete all the costs are there because you're going to have costs for the pre-construction with your consultants planning application survey then you obviously have all the cost of construction finishes services you also need to make sure that in your cost plan you've got financial costs inflation construction risk because there's always five items that you find on site that you haven't allowed for um, so Having a complete cost plan, that's the first part. And then being able to define where that money is gonna be invested in your property. Because ideally, you want the money to be added to your refurbishment or development, added at the back of the value of your property. So you make sure that you'll find that money back. Um, I'll, I will look at sort of two areas. There is the, the shell and core of the, of the property. So the structure, the windows, the roof and the floors. Um, on this one, you're really going to start looking at the efficiency of your house from an energy point of view, the durability and the maintenance. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, the base are going to be British standards. So the British standard will give you a reference of what you should do. But then you probably will want to improve that. And that's what we do on most of the property with our clients. So, yeah, so there are some... Yeah. Go on. I was just going to say, we'll see later as well some of the really clever ideas you have for creating that efficient space and, you know, going, go, you know, doing very clever things that seem obvious maybe once you've been told them. But to, to, to sort of me and, you know, it sort of blew my mind the idea that you could, you could do this stuff. Um, okay, yeah. And, and then in terms of, um, I guess, you have your cost, you have what you expect from that cost. And then how, how do you sort of manage clients' quality and, and their expectation and the result that you give them at the end? Yeah, so I think on the quality side, so once you understand the base built uh, elements where you put your money and 
investing in the channel core and the efficiency of your building, then there is obviously the interior finishes, yeah? And that's always a bit of a tricky thing because you can, you know, you can buy a door for a thousand pounds or for 8,000 pounds, but it really depends, you know, it's difficult for a client to, at the beginning of the project, to understand what that money is going to spend. So yeah. what we do sometimes, most of the time for our clients, and I'll show you that in a second. Um, we like to sort of go through, we, we define three different levels of quality uh, from bronze, silver to gold, which is basically trying to express um, the different intricacy in detail and finishes between one product to another. So this is a plan that we did recently for, for one of our clients where you basically across the property will have different level of finishes because you don't want to have a gold standard throughout. I don't think it makes sense. You probably want to have a back of house, which is a little bit more functional, and then the front of the property, which is obviously a higher standard. And then what we would do is going through every item of the project, from the doors here, bathrooms, kitchen, and show the different level of quality. So you can see on the door here, the bronze will be probably a very good quality of the shelf doors with the finishes. You might have five or 10 finishes to choose from. The silver might be a more bespoke doors, uh, that will be different heights and you can sort of manage that a little bit more and then the gold you go really high into the intricacy of the metal trim um, the finishes so there is obviously a, a quite a large gap between the bronze and the gold but it's just really showing the clients uh, you know whether they want that gold standard everywhere through every doors or actually you know on the front door I want that gold standard but on the back I'd like bronze so we usually take them through that you have the same thing for the stone you get the same thing for bathrooms and other other areas like that, and that and I guess also that, help us to define the cost throughout the project. Yeah, and, and, and that comes out the back end as well. Still, you know, you mentioned earlier it's all well and good. You could go gold on everything, but when you come to sell yeah. the property, or when you come to release the property to market, I guess if it's gold all over the place, you don't necessarily get the gold market price. Whereas having a combination of all of the above still gives you the gold market price. Um, Absolutely. You, you, yeah, you, you don't want to sort of put Kara marble in the back of your, your utility room. It just needs to be a balance between functionality and making sure, as you say, that you, know, you invest the money on the right location. So front room, you want to impress your guests or whoever's coming in. The back of ours need to be more functional and a bit more turned down. And you will probably play more on the durability of the finishes as opposed to the uh, wear effect. Yeah. So as well, again, I mentioned before, so I can never get my head round in a lot of big houses in Dubai. The, uh, the kitchens are never particularly well set up. Um, and, and it goes back to that sort of, it's not, it's not used by the, the owner or the inhabitant of the, the house, it's used by the people that are helping him at the house or him or her at the house. Um, so they don't finish them with the gold standard, but they put in, you know, maybe a, a, a sort of kitchen quality cooker and everything else being sort of stainless steel or, or very usable. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. And in terms of timescales, then I mentioned before, projects can take 12, 18 months. How, how does someone manage the timescale and how long does it take to complete these projects? Yeah, I mean, every, every project will be different, right? It depends how much structural work you're going to do on that property, whether you do a renovation or whether you do a full new built house. Um, I think there are a couple of elements that are really important to grasp when you're looking at the timing for a project. Um, the first part is going to be making sure that you understand the critical elements of your project. So you might have the planning that's going to be critical, that might have a risk to it because some time of planning can take, it will take eight weeks in the UK to get your planning approval, roughly eight to 10 weeks. Uh, but sometimes it could take a year, it could take two years. So those elements need to be understood, need to be quantified from a risk point of view so you don't sort of uh, have a very unrealistic timeline. The other part uh, is all the long lead time item. So sometimes we will order all the uh, air conditioning system much earlier before you start construction, because otherwise you're going to be on site, order your time, it's going to be two or three months of lead time and then you'll run out of time. You've got nothing to do on site and you're waiting for your equipment. Um, and the third part, which also affects quite a lot, especially in central London, your timing is the logistic and the working restriction. So when we work in places like Mayfair, Eaton Square, uh, you'll have restriction hours. So you need to count, you yeah. factor that in into your program because you can't make noise throughout the day because you've got people living above, below and around. So there's quite a strong restriction. And same that's thing not something that's considered in, in Dubai. That's not a consideration. 
They just yeah, build always, all yeah. the time. It's just <laughs> chick, 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 chick all the time. I, I lived in the marina for uh, three years and it's just this endless sort of crane swinging, chick, chick, chick of hammers and drills and concrete pouring overnight. And yeah, yeah we, we made we, yeah, we exactly in London that. just slightly more sophisticated. Yeah, we're having that, that discussion and, and clients abroad sometimes don't understand that you'll build a hotel in two years and it'll take you two years to build like a, you know, a penthouse over two floors and the like. What does it take so long? So obviously those elements uh, are important to take into consideration because it's just the way that it has to work here at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so everyone's done all their work, they've understood all their costs, their pros, you know, done their best to make sure they have a successful projects and you've looked after them but what are the typical mistakes people can make when approaching these big projects i think the first thing that we often uh, face uh it's having unrealistic or non-clear objective uh i'll give you an example we had uh, a couple of years back now uh, a client that will give us uh, a lower budget than he was planning to invest on the project so when you do okay. that trying to sort of save some money we obviously design the project to the budget, therefore to a slightly lower standard than what you might want at the end to invest and expect. So what does it mean is you plan all your projects to that lower standard, we arrive on site, he thinks, oh, actually, I've got a little bit more spare budget for my project, I'm going to start grading things on site. Uh, and that's where things starting to go wrong, because obviously your contractors will uh, have to price variation, uh, it will delay the process. Uh, because there's a lot of planning before it goes into your project. So this is probably one of the main mistakes is not really be sure of what you want to achieve and then mm -hmm. change your mind halfway through the project because that delayed everything. And once you once you got your contractors on site and you start to change your mind and delay your construction, that's where it's really going to cost you money because obviously yeah, you know, you'll pay for yeah, welfare, staff, all of the, you know, the contractors team which is there on site waiting for instruction, waiting to get the clear direction. Um, you have to pay those people but you're not actually progressing on your project. So I think that's where the, uh, the cost is really ramping up. Yeah, fine. So unrealistic expectations is a big mistake. Underestimating the cost of the construction and getting to site too quick without making. So planning is fail to prepare, prepare to fail, which is an age old saying, one that's been echoed in my mind since I was about 10 years old, and one that's critical on every level, I think. Yeah. Um, what does it take then to deliver these super luxury properties? You know, the attention to detail, what, what are the key things? I think uh, in some, well, I call a lot of people mind, uh, they sort of maybe believe that those quality are just achieved by having more expensive finishes, more expensive yeah. products, and then you've got that beautiful property that's coming through. And actually there is a bit more to that than just the finishes elements. I think it's the, the process of going from a blank sheet of paper to a finished product on site is drastically different because you will have to really control every detail on the project and everything takes a bit longer. So the first thing is really understanding the finished products, what you want to deliver. I will show you a couple of uh, slides and I will take you through some of the details to sort of give you a bit of an idea of what we are talking about. So this is the bit that blew my mind yesterday. Yeah. All right. Perfect. So, yeah. So this is just one of the projects we are working on at the moment, the living room. So this this uh, is not just about the finishes. Uh, in a project like this, we will also want to make sure that you integrate all the infrastructure of your apartment. So the air conditioning, the MEP, all that sort of technical side is integrated in your property. It works, but you can't see it. So for example, I don't know whether you see on the top of that ceiling, you've got a little recess between the lower ceiling and the higher ceiling. So we will usually use that gap to distribute the air conditioning across the, the room. So you dive in the grills, you don't see anything uh, across the room. You just have a gap, which is part of the design. So those things take quite a bit of time to integrate because you're gonna have to have a different system uh, of duct system onto the MEP. You need to calculate, making sure you've got the right velocity of the hair through the ductwork. So that is one example of uh, 
what makes a difference between that type of property and a more standard property where you'll have, you know, a unit on the walls and, you know, a grill on the walls and then everything is visible? Well, well all, I can, all I can think since you told me yesterday is how many grills there are in the ceiling of my house. And it seems that <laughs> obviously air conditioning is critical here, but all I can see now when I look up is holes in the roof for air conditioning. I need to get you around. And actually what I didn't say as well is so you will blow the air for the air conditioning across that gap here. And then when you've got the curtain pockets here with the recess, that's where the return air is going to come because obviously you need to recycle your air and return the air as well. So we'll use that to do the return air. So basically everything you see is integrated and you're not starting to have access panel everywhere, uh, which obviously is very, very important in that, uh, in that type of property. The, the level of, of detail is, is quite important. Yeah, fantastic. Um, this is another thing just to express a little bit the, uh, again, the level of detail, the attention to detail. This is a, this is a staircase that we, we're working at the moment. Uh, and just the uh, relationship between the stone and the timbers that you've got on the step, the way they're going to meet together. You've got a, a bespoke balustrade metal railing that goes onto every step. The process of doing that is more than just, you know, going to a, a good quality handrail, buy the handrail, install it on site. We'll have to draw that. Uh, every detail will have been drawn up. It will be prototyped uh, by a specialist. We'll test it. We'll review it. Obviously improve it because even the connection of the handrail onto your step is actually quite complicated. And then you'll just template it on site and install it. So all of that from a, a time element will have to be factored into your project because it will take much longer to get that manufactured, installed properly and accurately as opposed to just buy a product that's already made and just install it. So, and that goes through every detail from the staircase, the skirting, the door architrave, uh, across all your projects. Amazing. Um, yeah, and I guess that goes as far as including the light in the stairs and things like that. And, and that goes back to yeah. what you pointed out earlier, which is, if you plan all that at the start, it all fits into your plan. Whereas if you yeah. sort of decide at the last minute you want your air conditioning in the roof or you want, you know, the staircase to float under a timber banister, then it costs, you know, the delays are significant. And that's on top of a, a sort of COVID world where, you know, there are delays in delivering, delivering the, 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 um, the products as well, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I mean on, a, on a project like this, uh, on any of this project, you, you might work with like 30, 40, 50 different specialists. Um, so first you need to understand their process individually and then you need to make sure that those people are well connected together. Uh, they're all specialist artisans doing very beautiful objects, but that takes time. So that's yeah. why on a project like this, you need to be very careful in the planning. You need to install things in a certain order, otherwise you risk to damage everything as well around. So there is a, a careful planning from a time point of view as well from a detail element. Um, and then, so, wh so what are we looking at here in this living room? So it looks like a great place to watch England versus France on the rugby. Um, yeah. But what are the sort of unique, yeah. unique, yeah, yeah, <laughs> one day maybe, my friend. Um, what are the unique twists to the, um, the design here? Uh, well, you can see here at the back, we've got that sort of uh, wine cooler that's bespoke as well uh, at the end of the, of the kitchen. So again, those fridge, bespoke fridge are quite complicated to achieve. It works like a fridge, but it's all bespoke. So you need to have all the fridge system to be separated because you don't have the space and you also don't want the noise coming out into the kitchen. So often we can offset that system uh, of fan uh, out. And then you just have to uh, cloud all the internal to avoid condensation. Uh, so that's quite an interesting piece at the back that's sort of uh, wine coolers. You also have the chandeliers above where you've got the glass and the lighting integrated. So this is also quite a, an interesting piece. So just that to get the design, the prototype, the model dance can you know, take anything between three to six months just to be made. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And then our last um, example is it's open plan yeah. living and, and uh, dining living room. Uh, yeah, again, you, you still, you can see here, um, we've used the same scenario above the, uh, the corners to uh, distribute the air conditioning into the rooms. Um, so again, it takes a lot of, of planning and effort to get to achieve that. So you don't see anything. And this actually was a very uh, separated uh, existing apartment. So we knocked quite a lot of the walls out. So you then need to integrate the reinforcement of the structure in the ceiling, trying to achieve a flat ceiling across. So there's a lot of coordination that you don't see always uh, on, the, on the visual, but they go in the background 
to be able to have a fairly you know seamless flat ceiling all the way across without sort of any kink into the ceiling yeah amazing absolutely amazing i mean i think looking at all those photos i'd i'd, I'd move into any of those in a in a heartbeat so we'd have to thanks and maybe keep my wife away from the webinar so i don't have to try and get you around to to redesign the house. Um, so so that, that's super interesting, you know, the creativity, the ideas, the pre-planning of, of developing and building these luxury assets for, for people in London and globally. Um, I'll touch really briefly on financing these things because of course it's a critical part and, and, and I'll talk as well about how we work with Nicholas and, and work with other industry professionals in order to make sure these things are as successful as possible, but also as cost effective as possible. So to touch on how these things are financed, it's, 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 it's slightly different to your normal mortgage or term financing. Um, what a client would typically do is buy the property using a type of development financing and that might come from a traditional lender or from a fund of some sort or a bridging lender or a development financing lender or even some various institutions. Um, that lender would help to fund the purchase of the asset um, so a set loan to value against the value of the purchase. Um, but then they would also look to fund the ongoing works that you would do to the property um, up to a set loan to value against the GDVA, um, which is the value of the property when it's completed. Um, so I think what's really interesting there, we could talk all day about the various different costs and, and, and ideas on rates and things like that. But those are very specific conversations to be had with clients. So you can get in touch with Venice any time to do so but what's really interesting there i think and it goes back to i think what really underpins the topic of this webinar outside of luxury property which is planning and making sure you plan for success working with someone like nicholas to put together an accurate cost plan and schedule of works um, which gives you a key idea of when you need to draw the funds from the lender so day one you buy the property they release their initial tranche of money and then going forward the secondary funds are not just released to you in one bulk. You don't just get the two million pounds and it sits in your bank account waiting for you to start work. Those funds are released at sensible and interesting times as part of the project. So really when they're required. And what that does is it allows you not to be paying interest on unutilized funds. Um, and that's something that's really impossible if you then go and sort of start making it up as you go. Or, you know, as we always see on Grand Designs, deciding that your front door needs to be at the side of the house rather than the front of the house or the the um, the staircase needs to be a twizzy staircase instead of a central staircase. And it's these things that really add cost to these projects, both from the cost of financing the project, but also just from the operational and running costs um, that Nicholas is, is talking about. Um, so look, I, I'm going to ask, I'm going to be naughty. We're going to do a quick conclusion and then we'll go into a Q&A and answer some questions yeah. from those watching, but I've got one in question I want to ask myself first to beat the queue. Um, we talked about the design process, we talked about adding value, utilizing space, we talked about picking what products go into a property. In terms of applying for the planning and getting all that part, that stuff in place, is that something you help with as well or is that left to the, to the sort of buyer? No, so what we will do normally on the planning side is very interesting because uh, we we do apply for certain plannings, but we find out, especially in London, that people are doing that day in, day out, and they specialize in planning applications. So we usually yeah. will work with people that we know and trust, which are specialized in this, because the planning is two things. is the capability of understanding how to apply for planning, and also knowing the borough, have a relationship with the borough, so you really understand what they're looking for and try to avoid any risk and sort of apply something being rejected and we go back to planning. So we usually yeah. work with specialists there uh, in order to apply for the planning as well, for sure. Yeah, because that's the big minefield, right? You talked about having been able to check what planning's been, been approved in in, uh, in your street and things like that. We talk, you know, historically the thing that was amazing in London was the sort of iceberg house, which has become a bit of a faux pas in the planning world um, yeah. in more recent years. Um, and, I, I, you know, we're transacting on a transaction at the moment in, in West London where you know, planning wasn't followed. And well, I've got two examples. One where planning wasn't followed and then now had to take out quite a significant indemnity policy into drawdown on the funds of their mortgage. And then there's another project that I'm aware of, which is out west of London, where 
planning wasn't sought or, or, or advised on correctly and worked on properly with the architects, the designers, the planning officials. And actually that's ended up in them building up to first level in the house and then having to knock the whole thing down and start again to the tune of several million pounds. Um, so, you know, the simple mistakes in the planning process really do affect your overall product. And that goes at the end of the day, when you sell the property to make the money you're looking to sort of recoup on it. Um, so that goes into a quick conclusion and then we'll, we'll talk about the Q&A. So look, I found it super interesting. I think we've done a load of webinars now with pri private client advisors um, and a lot of the people that are watching today. Now, they're, they're interesting in their own right, but they're sort of around products. So they're around inheritance tax planning and legal work. And this is the first one we've done with a creative twist, um, which is something I've been really excited to do. So I can only thank Nicholas for joining us, for taking the time, no problem, thank you. for sitting in front of some of his amazing designs and making it to the office. Um, today, we refer, or I refer most of my clients that are looking for advice on that interior design and project side of things to Nicholas. And I think Nicholas, it goes from, you know, relatively small, well, not small, but to, to sort of medium-sized projects all the way through to large and, and, and mass scale products. So I, I can't sort of vouch for the quality of Nicholas's work any higher so thank you for joining us today and uh, you, you know this will go live on on youtube later and of course we'll be um sort of blitzing everyone's inboxes with linkedin posts and things like that for feedback and and various other um bits and bobs so let's have a quick dig around in the q a and just have a see and look as to what questions have been asked i think we've got quite a few give me two seconds Okay, so the first question, which I think we can probably both give a little bit of an answer on, uh, which is, is now the right time to buy a luxury property? Um, in my mind, it's always a good time to buy a property um, because why not buy property and mortgage it? Um, but I think we have to be more serious post-COVID and really understand whether it's the correct time to be buying real estate. Certainly the feedback that I'm seeing in the marketplace is everyone's very excited to buy property. Um, whether or not it's bottomed out at the back of COVID-19 and, and various other things that happened in the UK over the last few years, or whether there's still more to come. But I think people are interested for a multitude of reasons to buy property. And I think if you've got the right advisors around you, there's some great opportunities in, in London and other prime cities globally um, as a place A, to move your families for education, etc., and also B, as a place to, to sort of put your money. And I guess, Nicholas, to some extent, you would agree on, on that. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, I think with, with the time of the COVID as well, people sort of... Okay, Nicholas is frozen. He's pausing for... Uh, Specialising that than we are. You froze for a second, so I think you were pausing to uh, build some atmosphere before you answer. Okay, perfect. So I was just saying that um, I think there are there are people that sort of uh, thinking they will uh, find a very good deal at the moment because of the situation. I'm not sure whether that's very true. Uh, as I said, we're not specialized search agents. Uh, we're working with lots of uh, very good people uh, on that front. Um, but yeah, there are definitely some more activity because of that and just people that's been uh, away from the market for three months thinking they're going to want to buy now they're all coming back together at the same time so that's why i think uh, we can see it's it's a little bit more active of course yeah it's an interesting time and how does someone know that they're buying the right property what are, is there any sort hmm. of key top five things they need to look for or anything like that or is it about the professionals that give the advice well i, I think i think from a from from our side i guess all that sort of what we discuss about sort of you know understanding what you want to do with the property how much you want to spend, how long it will take. We usually will do that uh, for clients before they actually buy. So there is um, often, uh, we do a feasibility study on the property before they actually uh, commit to purchase it. And this is a, probably a way just to make sure that with the property you have, if you know you want to do some development into it, you know that you can achieve what you need. So if you want a, you know, an extra bedrooms or anything like that, you can understand the risk and the potential of that property before you actually commit. So I think that's definitely the best way to do it. It's first looking at the risk and the potential before you buy. Yeah. And then once you buy them, you can implement your projects. Fantastic. And you're back. Um, and then what, what should people really be considering? 
when buying or when choosing the interior design of a prime central luxury property? <laughs> um, well, I, I guess obviously, you know, beyond the obvious skills and, and, and style, because obviously every designer, I guess, would have their set and own style. So people obviously come to designers because they've seen pictures of their projects and then they adhere to that. Um, the other thing is just making sure that you can, um, you know, you get on with the person you are dealing with because a design process, you know, it could be anything between sort of, you know, 10 months to three years. So there is a, you know, we always build a fairly long relationship with our clients and it's very important that you get on with that person, you can work with them. Uh, so I think that's key, really understanding it's, it's as much as capability and skill as you know, people, it's, it's, it's a people business. We're meeting people on a daily basis regularly. So you need to be able to get on with them. I think that's, that's definitely the key. That's the key thing. So get your mates to do it for you or just find someone yeah. you like to do it for you. Um, yeah, exactly. So obviously we've talked today, you know, slightly biased because we've, you know, Ennis ultimately finances properties in, in London and, and, and Europe. Are there, is, is it just London in which you work or do you work in other jurisdictions globally? No, no, actually, uh, in the past, and, and even now, we, we do actually work quite a lot uh, uh, across different countries. We work in Monaco at the moment, Switzerland, uh, Kenya, uh, Middle East. Uh, we do work in Bahrain at the moment. So, no, we've, we've got a pretty good uh, track record, and we understand um, are you, you know, working in different, in different countries for sure. I think we do about 30% of our work at the moment in London, the rest is outside. Okay, and soon a villa in Alfajan, Dubai, once my wife watches the webinar and I get back to work and, and make some point. No problem. <laughs> um, how, how, so you talk then about international product projects. How do, you, how do you manage those from sitting in London? I mean, the Ennis model is very much being, we help people in various jurisdictions, so let's have offices so we can service them locally and make sure they're well, best well looked after. Um, how, how do you manage to manage, manage clients globally um, on various projects? Yeah, so from a, on, on the design aspect, uh, it's quite easy. All the design is done here in London, whether you design a house in Dubai, Bahrain, Africa, it, you, you can design it, you know, it's not an issue. And obviously with all the technology now, it's quite easy to keep contact with our clients. On the project management side of it, where in London or south of France, we will manage the project from start to finish on the, on the project management, being on site regularly and manage all the, uh, the people that are working there. When it's other places like the Middle East or like Africa or like the States, we'll usually work with the local architect. Uh, and there's two good reasons for that is because you want someone on the ground uh, day in, day out, they'll be able to eyes and yeah. be able really to manage everyone there. But also about making sure that all the local regulations, the planning elements need to be done by local, they're not, they're not the market, they're not the regulation. So we're working in tandem with the local architects when it's that. Yeah, fine. Super. Um, and I kind of answered this question in the last question because I got excited. Um, what, how do you choose your mortgage brokerage when buying Prime Central London? I think I'll answer this one rather than you. Uh, Nicholas, yeah, it's, it's an easy answer. You just have to choose Ennis um, as the <laughs> sort of leading provider. Uh, but I think it's critical. I think the fundamental thing which we've talked about again and again and we've talked about on this webinar is preparation. Um, and that is when you're buying a prime central London project or a property, it's critical to spend time upfront invested in expert opinions and not those guys that are that are working on the off chance they have one big transaction for the year. Um, so I think you need to look at a, a, a brokerage that has global scope, which, you know, with offices globally, I think Ennis is well positioned to do so. And you need to talk to a brokerage that's set up A, from their back office infrastructure and B, from their banking relationship structure, um, who's well positioned to advise on large transactions. You know, they're not as straightforward as you'll know, Nicholas, as buying a one bedroom flat to rent out or buying yeah, a one bedroom absolutely. flat to live in. There's, there's a lot more behind the scenes in terms of structure, in terms of tax planning, in terms of the legal and pro conveyancing process. And it's critical to make sure that you're losing some of the experience in that, you know, it doesn't, it's best not to use someone's first rodeo 
on your 20 million pound purchase, right? And that, that, that's yeah. sort of the easiest way to put it. So it's experience and, and, and infrastructure. Um, how, for you, Nicholas, then, how do I avoid cost escalation? I think it goes to what you said. I think uh, the key things, it's planning. Most of people often, when we start a project, want to go on, on site straight away uh, because they, they believe that that's where the action is happening. That's where you're going to make your project. You want to rush uh, into it and get the hands stuck in immediately. Exactly. Let's go on site as soon as we can. I think that you shouldn't underestimate that pre-construction phase where you design, you plan, you coordinate, and then you'll make sure that before you go to site, you know what you're gonna deliver. The worst thing is changing your opinion halfway through construction, not making decision, not knowing what to purchase. That's where costs starting to escalate because as soon as you go on site, your cash flow for yeah. your project will you know, go exponentially and therefore any delay during that period will obviously add a lot of costs. So I think that's very, very important. Make decision uh, quickly and make your decision before you go on site. That's so important. Yeah, and don't change your mind halfway through your mind. sticking exactly. in the kitchen. Or put it in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it to the end. Now, we talked about projects then, uh, <laughs> projects internationally and um, working on that. And, and I talked briefly earlier in the webinar on you're not popping down to Staples or B&Q to buy your, your bits. How do you find your suppliers for a project and, and, and what do you recommend to people looking for suppliers? Yeah, uh, that's yeah, uh, absolutely right. I mean, the suppliers, there is two things you need to understand on the suppliers is obviously the quality of the products they're going to deliver, which is obviously very important. That's one thing. But the other part, it's all the process and the service you're going to get in order to start from manufacturing to delivery. And on a big project, on any big project, those, this service part is so important because anything that doesn't fall into place will have a knock-on effect on other trades, other people wanting to do the work, and that will jeopardize your project very quickly. So we usually want or like to work with people we've tested before and that we trust for that reason because yeah. we, we know that they understand the quality of the project and therefore we are not gonna have an issue on the process. Then we will often test new people uh, just because we want always to be able to grow our network to be able to serve people whether they're in France, in the UK or anyone else in the world. So we do have a network which is actually quite widely cast from Asia, Europe and the UK. There's got you know, really good people there as well. Fantastic. So I think that's all of the questions we have today and we're pretty much on the money as promised to one hour. I think 53 minutes is, is pretty good going. We've kept an interesting pitter-patter, um, which leads us to conclude. Um, fantastic to have you again, and I look forward to catching up with you properly over a drink when we're back in London, um, which we're now allowed to travel, so it could be imminently. Uh, as excuse now. The British Embassy gives me back my passport, which they're uh, <laughs> renewing at the moment. I'll be back. Um, so, yeah, thank you so thank much. You. We'll have to grab a drink when I, when I can. Um, I think you've got one slide to share, which has contact details on. And then oh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll sort of uh, wrap up the um, wrap up the webinar. And then just okay. while you're loading that, thank you to everyone who joined. Um, if you've got any questions, please do contact Nicholas or myself directly. Um, we'd be more than happy to to answer those for you. And our contact details are all there now. Thank you, Nicholas, and I'll see Toby, you soon. Thanks very much. That was a pleasure. Thanks.